Managing Violence Podcast, episode 88. We're talking situational awareness with Dr. Gav Schneider. Gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Managing Violence Podcast. Apologies for the delay in getting this one out. My schedule has been absolutely nuts the last couple of weeks, but we are here and I am happy to bring you another episode with a repeat guest, third time on the show, my boss, my sensei, uh, and uh, one of the world's leading experts on the subject matter at hand, Dr. Gav Schneider. And uh, Gav and I actually caught up in a hotel room. <laughs> Gav was in Melbourne, we're doing some business together, and uh, we had a couple of hours to kill, and we thought, you know what, let's, let's, let's record a podcast. So uh, I said, Gav, do you reckon you can talk for an hour about situational awareness? And uh, we certainly could. So uh, I am joined by Dr. Gav Schneider as we take a deep dive into situational awareness. As you may know, he is the author of the book, Can I See Your Hands and Beyond the Bodyguard, uh, which are excellent books that I highly recommend you check out. Uh, now, before we get to Gav, I would just like to remind you that if you're after bonus content for this episode or for any other episode, make sure you head to patreon.com forward slash managing violence. And also make sure you check out my book, which is now available in paperback in Australia. Who would have thought that as an Australian author writing a book, <laughs> publishing in Australia that has taken this long to be able to make the paperback available here but it is you go to Amazon and search for Neon Jungle Bounces True Tales or Lessons Laughs and Lacerations you will find my book uh, available now in paperback and on Kindle anywhere in the world make sure you check that out alright without further ado here we go with Dr. Gav Schneider I'm joined here on the Managing Violence podcast by Dr. Gav Schneider, who uh, many of you will be aware from uh, our previous episodes with Gav. Uh, not only is he a doctor of criminology and uh, uh, and my boss, but also a high-ranking martial artist with a seventh degree black belt in Krav Maga and Jiu-Jitsu, and uh, also a bunch of other creds, Taekwondo, Ninjitsu, uh, pretty much anything involves hurting people, Gav's had a crack at it. Uh, was formerly a, uh, got his career started in South Africa as a professional close personal protection operator and has stayed very closely aligned to the high-end security industry uh, in many countries, operating in 17 countries. So he comes to us with a plethora of experience, uh, not just in the martial arts, but also in the practical application of personal safety concepts. So the topic that uh, I've been ch just chatting to Gavin, in case you're, you're wondering why the audio sounds different, we are actually face-to-face, -face, so it's very unusual for me to have an interview guest literally across the hotel room from me. So uh, apo apologies if you're thinking the sound doesn't sound the same, it's because we're in a hotel room rather than my home studio, but uh, it, is, it is fun to get some uh, actual personal interactions rather than you know, Zoom cutting in and out all the time. But the topic for today with Gav is we're going to focus uh, on situational awareness now, Gav, situational awareness, it's, it's one of those things that all of us in this space, all of us that are, that are teaching people how to be you know, self-defense or violence management, conflict resolution, healthcare, security, law enforcement, wherever, whatever world you're from, we all say that situational awareness is important. So in your own words, how, how do you describe the importance of situational awareness, and when did this first appear on your radar as something that was sort of a crucial concept for self-defense training and, and personal security? Thanks for having me back, Joe. And 
I think it's interesting that, you know, so many martial artists, security professionals talk about situational awareness but can't explain it. And honestly, if I look at my martial arts career, situational awareness was almost irrelevant to me up until I started teaching and then became super relevant when I got into the security world. So I think part of the challenge and, you know, the old Sun Tzu saying, you know, know yourself and, you know, you may win 50% of the battles, know your enemy, you may win the other 50%, know both, you've got a good chance of winning both. That's probably paraphrased pretty badly. But situational awareness, I think, is so often confused because we only look at it from the extrinsic. We only look at, I need to know what's happening around me, as opposed to being aware of how I am, how I am functioning, and what that then means with what's happening around me. And this is where martial arts, I think, is one of the most incredible ways of developing both. You know, you look at uh, somebody who just gets started with martial arts, their first battle is trying to make their body just do what they want it to do. And the thought of, you know, stopping somebody, punching them in the face and hitting back is often overwhelming for most beginners. And over time, they develop proximity sense, they understand distance and timing, and they can then control their body almost autonomically. And we get to that point where you can master somebody else's body and actually make their body do what you want their body to do. So the concept of situational awareness is so broad. And when we pigeonhole it into, you know, simply looking around for bad stuff that could hurt us, we we lose all the other benefits that being situationally aware can bring. So I I think in exploring this idea, it really, really was hammered home for me when I, I started teaching people who would never be able to win fights. You know, people who would come and learn self defense and, and you look at them and you go, I don't even know why you're here because you know, you've come to a one-day course or you're training for a few months. We know you're not going to be serious about this. Uh, and, you know, we'll do the best we can to give you some skills, but probably, you know, the chances are of you winning a, a violent encounter are pretty slim. But situational awareness is something everyone can use. And uh, as you know, for me, you know, having lost a loved one in violent robbery, teaching people something they can use straight away that doesn't take physical attributes and physical skills is, is very attractive. The problem is we tend to think situational awareness is easier than physicality. And I think that's a big mistake. Uh, physicality is often easier because you know, it becomes autonomic once we've trained. Situational awareness requires discipline. It requires habit to build it. Absolutely. It's, it's something that uh, I catch myself on so regularly because, I, you know, as, you, as you know, like I'm, I'm talking to people about situational awareness just about every single day. Uh, and, and if I'm not talking to someone, talking to a client about it or to a, you know, to a student about it, I'm talking to my kids about it, right? Uh, and yet I'll still find myself replying to a text message or replying to an email while I'm walking between meetings completely really oblivious to my surroundings because we've developed a level of comfort for, for the environment and I probably wouldn't be doing that if it was late at night in an area I didn't know, maybe, hopefully. Um, but there's also like situational awareness. If you, if you unpack it, I mean, it's about your situation. It's the, the risk that opposed to me as a, a large male in a first world country in a relatively safe city walking in an area that I know like that situation is completely different than if any of those variables were impacted one way or another by being a different person with different levels of ability within a different environment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think sometimes we pigeonhole that too much. And uh, one thing that 
uh, it was a, it was a concept I've just been uh, rereading or, or more accurately re-listening to uh, Gavin DeBecker's book, The Gift of Fear. Which, you know, obviously if you if you haven't read that and you're listening to this podcast, um, you probably should read that. But um, uh, he he talks about sometimes people when the, we start giving them uh, a brief on all the things that could hurt them, right? Instead of being really situationally aware, which is should be reactive. They try to be proactive in that they start looking at every hedge and go, someone could be behind that. Someone could be in that car. Someone could be doing this. Someone could be doing that. And we actually start imagining a reality that's not there rather than being switched on to the reality that is around us. So uh, it's a very long-winded way of introducing a question because in in the first interview I did with you, uh, I think it was over 18 months ago now, but in the first interview uh, you talked about sheepdog theory. And we, we talked about sw- switching people on, making them more situationally aware. And there was an excellent question that was asked, and I, I forget who asked it. I apologize. Hopefully you're still listening to the show and you get your answer to this question now. But the question was, how do you take someone who is switched off, someone who is oblivious to the dangers around them, and make them switched on without terrifying them? Okay, so we've only got a 40-minute podcast. Um, but... I want to talk about the idea of context first, because without context, you can't achieve what you just described, which is switching on the sheep. You know, how do we switch on those people who don't want to hear about the bad stuff in this world? Um, so one of my first instructors was a guy by the name of uh, Vernon Rosenberg, who I think I spoke about on one of the earlier podcasts. Uh, so I started training with Vernon when I was about 11 years old, maybe 10 years old. Uh, Vernon you know, was a guy who carried three firearms with him because he didn't believe in mag changes. Uh, and, you know, 12 years old, he would come to training and pull out his service pistol and go, oh, have a look here. There was, and there was, I still remember the incident, there were still pieces of some guy's face stuck in the slide of his service issue Beretta <laughs> because, you know, he, he was really impressed with how striking someone in the face with a gun works. Um, so <laughs> between the age of, let's say, 11 and 16, I truly believed everyone was out to get me. You know, I was training martial arts two, three hours a day. Vernon was my primary mentor. And vigilance, readiness, and preparation, uh, particularly in South Africa, you know, at that time was, was you know, f- uh, probably foremost on everybody's mind. And even then, it, it constantly just uh, caused cognitive dissonance for me, you know, that where you can't believe other people don't do this because I was always ready, you know, to, to the point... Uh, at, you know, as a, as a young boy, my mother used to, used to wake me up from the door for school because she came in once too close and I almost assaulted her. And I wouldn't go to sleep without knives strategically placed all around the room. And, and this was like an 11 or 12-year-old kid. Yeah, you, you, you'd be getting reported these days. That's exactly right. <laughs> maybe, maybe South Africa is different. In, but, in Australia, we'd probably be calling for an intervention. But, but to your point, it's, it's around context and belief. So if people do believe there are threats everywhere, then for them it's true. And, you know, that anxiety and that stress is not normal. And we talk a lot about, you know, the ability to raise and lower your awareness. And that's critically important. And you sort of described that earlier when you were talking about, oh, I get distracted, I look at my phone. But you're looking at it at a time where it's okay to be distracted. The likelihood of somebody coming to hurt you is very slim. So the problem we've got in trying to answer your question is that people base their view of the world based on everything they've ever seen, heard, come across, or experienced. So thank goodness we live in a comparatively safe time. Like violence is still a problem, but you know, hundreds of years ago, everybody knew that some bad guy might come in and hurt you. 
Okay, or somebody will steal your stuff, or somebody who's bigger and stronger and nastier will overwhelm you. Now, because we, and, and not everybody has this luxury, but many of us do live in you know, civilized environments where that personal risk is lower. So I'll, I'll never forget, I taught a woman's self-defense course, this is probably 1996 in the US. And I, I, at that time I was young, I was 19, I'd been teaching for five years. I was I had two second degree black belts, and I'd just been given my black belt in Hisadut, uh, the system I trained in Israel. So I was in Atlanta in the USA, and I was running a women's self defense program for housewives because I needed to make money. And there was one lady who came to the training, and you know when people are just disengaged, she didn't want to be there. All her friends were there. That's why she was there, and. After probably, I think I did four two-hour sessions with them. So on about the third one, I just said to her, why are you here? And uh, if you think I'm blunt now, you should have seen how blunt I was then. <laughs> and she looked at me and she went, well, I'm here because my friends are here and I disagree with everything you're doing because every man I've ever met in my life has only been respectful and nobody's ever done anything that would lead me to believe they would hurt me. And at that time, I, I still remember looking at her going, wow, I don't know what world you live in, but where I come from, you know, people get hurt all the time. And, you know, if you walk, if you walk down the street dressed the way you're dressed, somebody's going to attack you. But for her, it was a totally alternative reality. So I, I remember after that session, I, I went back and I was like, well, how do I convince this person that what I'm doing is of value to them? And it was a week between these sessions. Okay, and... Uh, my academic capability wasn't highly evolved then, but I, I trawled through all the local newspapers I could find, trying to look for evidence of things going wrong. And eventually I found a case of rape that was reported in a local newspaper, like in page 15, paragraph 5. It was a home invasion. Um, and it turned out that this was three blocks away from where this woman lived. And I, you know, a little bit smugly, in hindsight, I would have done it differently. Cut the, cut the article out, and I took it to the next training session. And I showed it to her, and her whole face and whole demeanor changed. It looked like she was about to start crying. She went, that, that can't be. That's around the corner from where I live. And, you know, after that, she actually was comparatively engaged for the rest of the two hours, but maybe a bit shell-shocked. And, you know, that's a very simplistic example of you know, how we have to prove to people sometimes bad things can happen. And they will only accept it when they get to relate it back to the context and environment they're in. Most of the time, if you're a use of force, self-defense instructor, a situational awareness teacher, whatever you want to call it, you don't have time to do that. If I look at our business careers now, we would never have time to do the research to prove one person wrong. Okay, so part of the challenge now is... I've actually come to the conclusion through my career that you have to decide what sort of teacher you want to be. Are you a teacher that wants to convert sheep into sheepdogs? Are you somebody who wants to take deniers and try and convince them that your perspective is real? Are you somebody that only wants to help those who want to help themselves because they're different skill sets that require different amounts of energy? Absolutely. Uh, and I think there's there's a certain point where 
you know, and, and it's it's not something that uh, I know you're not just for, for, for the sake of clarification in case anyone's going right. I need to put you know rape cases in front of everyone who says that. I mean, I know I know you're not saying that's what you should do. Uh, there, there comes a certain point where you can only educate so far, right? And and for some people, yeah, yeah, their threat profile is so low that just a little bit more awareness is all they need. They don't, and I don't, I don't want anyone thinking that if they're out on their own, they're definitely going to be attacked. Like that's that's the opposite. I think we have to be so careful when, when we're teaching people self-defense. Like we're talking about the worst day of your life, which is probably not going to happen, but on that 0.0001% chance that this does happen to you, one should be prepared, right? Uh, it's, it, I, I usually draw the, the, um, the equivalency of, of like learning surf lifesaving. Okay? If you live in Australia, as an example, like most kids learn how to swim. Most kids can learn how to, can, can swim in the ocean uh, because it's, if you grow up, if you grow up near the water, then that's kind of a, a basic skill to have. Knowing how to save someone who is drowning is an incredibly useful skill to have that you'll probably never, ever have to use. But the consequence of not knowing when it happens are so much greater than the consequence of knowing and not having to use it, right? So it, it, it's something that everyone should know how to do, but it, it, I don't need everyone obsessing about, I need, every time I go to the beach, I need to scan the water and make sure no one's drowning. Okay? But we want to give some skills. So I think when we're talking about situational awareness, like some people do need that proverbial smack in the face with, hey, this is what you're getting into, dummy. Uh, and some people, it's, it's, it's more of a gentle approach. I, I think with um, what you say there about what sort of instructor do you want to be, who do you want to focus on, that, that shouldn't come with any kind of value judgment, right? There, there are going to be those that are yeah, more evangelical about, about getting everybody switched on. And there are going to be those that go, you know what, I only want to deal with self-motivated type one personalities that are already high performance and they want to go to the next level. And that's totally fine if that's what you want to do. Just don't market yourself as being something other than that, right? Uh, coming, coming back to situational awareness, what are some of the tools and strategies you've come up with over the years to train it and to get better at it? Thanks, Joe. So I, I think a few things. Uh, as you know, I wrote a book on it. And, you know, every time you, for those of you who've tried, written articles and written books, you always think you can do better when you look back at it and go, oh, I missed that part or I missed this part. The problem about teaching something like situational awareness or martial arts or security or close protection in a book is that they're not theory subjects. So you can put down all these models and all these theories and you can have all these pictures that explain how this works and people can read that over and over again and still not be able to do it. In fact, most of the time, the people who've read the book can go, oh, I've got that nailed. You know they're probably pretty vulnerable and you know they're probably lying to themselves. So, you know, it is a challenge. And the more I got into the world of security, the more we were confronted with these exercises, you know, particularly in close protection. You know, you go and do hostile, you know, you're doing reconnaissance and you're, doing root reckies and you're doing you know proactive planning and you're trying to identify all these different pieces you know if, you, if you're doing counter surveillance activities you're trying to make sure we're shaking off people who may or may not be following you part of the challenge with this stuff is accepting your own limitations and understanding that you want to make sure at the right time you are providing the right amount of focus so to develop that skill firstly comes down to what we started with right in the beginning, it's context. Where are you right now? When's the best time to prepare yourself? Well, it's actually when you're safest. The worst time to be practicing situational awareness is when you're actually under real threat. 
you know, at that point, if it's not instinctive, you're already in trouble. If you haven't removed yourself from the situation, it's probably too late. So there's lots of little awareness games that I'm sure all of us know. You know, can can you spot? You know, how many red cars can you spot? How many people wearing a baseball cap can you spot? I think it's little things though, and you know, bearing in mind your listenership are primarily sheepdogs, I would assume, and people like us that get this stuff. Otherwise, they probably aren't, you know, listening at this point. You know, one of the games that we learned early on around training your effectiveness for target acquisition with martial arts was you. You walk down the street and every person who walks past, you visualize, well, that's what their knees exposed, I could kick them in the knee. Or I'm standing in an elevator and people are around me, you go, well, I could you know, hit that guy in the back of the head, I could grab this person by the hair. And I, I'm sure every martial artist listening has played that game many, many times. I'm so glad it's not just me. I've always been a little bit concerned that it was just me. Uh, it, it is just you, Joe. Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the reality is things like that start to develop really good situational awareness. We're studying people, we're studying behavior, we're studying positioning, we're aligning our own response to that. The challenge, though, is we're not necessarily planning for a proportionate and appropriate use of force where we do exercises like that. We should also be considering where would I run, where would I hide, what sort of improvised tools could I use to protect myself when we play that game. So, you know, I, I like to really go back to the basics of what are our instinctive flight or fight response mechanisms going to be? Fight, flight, freeze, or panic. And at the very least, we want to go, if I want to develop good situational awareness, I need to first and foremost go, what threat would cause me to fight? What threat would cause me to fight? If I can't at least identify those, then why are you worrying? And from there, you can then start playing the game of, if I have to flight, where would I run? Where would I hide? If I have to fight, what could I do? What weapons could I use? And how would I apply that? And you can start to subconsciously program uh, your intuition over time to do that intuitively. And it's interesting. I'm sure most of your listeners, if, if they're experienced martial artists or security practitioners, have probably gone through the cycle where it usually happens probably between blue and brown belt for most people. You've been training for a few years now. Most of your responses are reflexive. And you try to make sure nobody will ever surprise you. And if they do surprise you, you'll headlock them, punch them, take them down, do whatever it is in the blink of an eye. And that level of vigilance is exceptionally difficult to maintain, but also it's impractical because you're not in a war zone. And even, you know, if we, if we take, for example, crowd control or nightclub bouncers, you know, your whole, is, your whole goal there is de-escalation, not figuring out which super fancy technique can I use tonight because you'll have a pretty short-lived career. So in terms of this stuff, I, th I think... The most important part with this is the initial part of building habitual capability. And as, as you know, I talk about in the book, we teach this stuff all the time. It takes at least 21 to 30 days of continuous, repetitive, perfect practice to build a habit. And if you haven't built situational awareness as an habitual capability, it's probably not going to work for you. So this is the interesting piece where you talk about how to switch on the people who don't want to be switched on. You know, how to develop vigilance for the people who don't want to be vigilant. You have to do it slowly with aspects that are of interest to them. And simple little examples. You know, once you study psychology a little bit, you start understanding how the brain works, you understand how the, the RAS, the reticular activating system works, and that it's triggered by things that are of interest for me or things that could hurt me. And this is where most sheepdogs fail to educate sheep. 
because we naturally believe, well, if it's interesting for us, it should be interesting for everyone else. And it actually causes cognitive dissonance, which causes a state of uh, dis-ease and comfort for people who have to think about the fact that someone could hurt them. So it's much better to go slower. So I've found over time and over the years, even though it's frustrating for sheepdogs, and particularly those of you who've been exposed to real violence, uh, it's very hard to articulate that in a way that people who haven't been exposed to it will understand. And I'm sure most of you listening who've tried to do that have probably gone, it's too hard. I'm actually just not even going to bother to talk to people who haven't been exposed to violence about real violence because either they jump to conclusions or they think you're kind of uh, showboating or you know, um, glorifying violence. So simple little things. I found, you know, if we can relate, for example, crossing the road and people going, well, I actually apply great situational awareness when I cross the road because I don't want to get hit by a car. Uh, you know, other little things, you know, you click on a website link. Even the least situationally aware person online may actually be going, well, is this taking me to the website I want to go to? You know, you get a spam email. Hopefully we evaluate some of those things. So the, the best advice I would give people is relate known to known. Don't leap people uh, into the unknown. It's uncomfortable for them. They will, they will resist and you'll actually alienate them. Yeah, it's, it's something that uh, I've seen and I've been so guilty of this in the past as well. I mean, you, you get a little bit of knowledge and you're like, I need to share this with everybody in my life. And everybody in your life doesn't have the same interests as you and they, they, they don't have the same reality as you. And it's uh, I've heard this from so many friends that have worked in corrections or they've worked in law enforcement and they just want to share the horrors of the world with people that live a very sheltered life that are never going to come across these monsters. And not only is it probably counterproductive, but it actually makes people less willing to listen in the future. Uh, and I, I think it's something we have to be very mindful of that you don't need to throw someone into a... You know, if you want to teach someone to swim, you don't take them where they can't, can't reach. You, know, you, you, want to, you want to get the mechanics right where they feel a little bit safer. Uh, and I think that's that's part of that, that building that situational awareness is how do we do it? As you said, relate known to known. Let's talk about some things where they're already exercising situational awareness, like crossing the road or like when they're reverse parking, okay, or when they're, when they're driving in a new city and they're paying attention to everything around them because it's not automatic for them yet. If we can if we can draw those connections. Uh, one, one thing that um, we, we talk about threat assessment sometimes, and threat assessment can obviously go very, very deep. It's a whole, it's a whole field of study in its, in its own right. Uh, but situational awareness to me really is the foundation of, of threat assessment. And uh, there was a model that, that I taught for a number of years called SOS, which was self, others, then situation. Uh, and it really, the foundation of that was uh, be able to look at yourself in terms of what's my, phys what's my physical capabilities right now. Okay? From the clothing I'm wearing to any injuries I'm carrying to whether I'm, whether I'm presenting an attractive target or, or, an or a not very attractive target. And that could, that could be very dependent upon where I'm at in the world at the moment because it, just because I'm a, a nondescript target in one part of the world doesn't mean I'm not a very attractive target in a different part of the world uh, where criminality might be a little bit more sophisticated or my, my life might be worth a bit more <laughs> in, in some countries. So uh, understanding yourself, understanding the, the other people, personal people you're dealing with um, and being able to play that situational awareness game, as you said, not just about how could I take them out, but... What does the way they're dressed tell me about them, whether it's what they're intending to do for the day, like someone who's dressed as we are right now in corporate attire is going to be probably have different intentions for the day than someone who's dressed in camouflage versus someone who's dressed in street attire or, or yeah, it, it might communicate how they see themselves in the world 
um, the, whether they're dressed in yeah punk fashion or their hip hop fashion or or just like yeah they're, they're wearing the, the the pristine white New Balance of a of a barbecue dad right I mean that it, it indicates something about how they see themselves in the world because the way we dress is a form of communication. Um, do they are they displaying any kind of injury or do they have a limp or do they appear to be drug affected or are they a little bit erratic with their movements? What sort of mood are they in? Can, what can I infer by the way they're interacting with the world around them that might tell me something about them? Um, how many people are they making eye contact? All these things that you talk about in your book. And then lastly, the situation, which is you know, what, what is the context of this interaction? Uh, because what's normal behavior in one situation can be different to another. Uh, and there might be a whole different range of variables that are going to be okay in different situations, places, like the way someone interacts with me one-on-one, uh, I'm going to have a different range of norms versus the, if they're interacting with me the same way while my children are with me. Um, there's going to be different things that I accept within that. So that, that was the SOS model. Uh, I, I know one, one thing I learned from you or the, uh, a, a particular methodology I learned from you is a three-point check system. So it's it, similar in, in, in nature in that we're systemizing uh, situational awareness, but I'll give you an opportunity just to just to unpack for the people that haven't read your book that might not know what the three point check system is. What is it? Thanks, Joe. Um, bit of history with that. So I mean, we found that it's something I like to refer to as the awareness toolbox. Uh, having one tool is not necessarily very effective. You need a tool to be able to program your intuition. You need to be able to baseline internal and external context. We need to be able to raise and lower our awareness. And then we need practical tools like the three-point check system, which, you know, from a historical perspective, uh, we started training close protectors uh, realistically in about 2000, uh, 21 years ago, give or take, in South Africa. And uh, we would, uh, when it started, we actually started with a 10-day program, which anybody who's a, an experienced trained protector knows 10 days is really short. You know, trying to build the right capabilities in realistically for close protection, there's at least 20 to 25 subjects that have to be covered to create competency, uh, is pretty tough. And the other problem we had was that, you know, organizations and clients that were sending us people to train really didn't read the uh, entry requirements and the capability requirements of the people that had to be trained. You know, we were saying somebody has to come and train, they should be this level fit, they should have this level of literacy, they should have this level of education, and inevitably we'd get sent people that were out of shape, couldn't read or write, had never touched a firearm, uh, and the client's perception was, you know, after 10 days, I'm going to get this person back that, you know, they're going to be a combination of, you know, Rambo and Kevin Costner from The Bodyguard. So, you know, back then we decided, let's research this a little what is it that enables the sheepdog, the veteran sheepdog, the highly experienced protector to have that intuitive sixth sense that when they walk into a room, intuitively they know who's going to be the problem, what they're probably going to do, and how they can counter it with a security trick. And, and I learned this early on in my, my operational career. You know, as, as a young close protector, um, I'd just be blown away and amazed by the veterans who literally, particularly with crowds, you know, they'd scan the crowd, they'd straight away pick out who the problem people were going to be. Uh, they'd come up with plans to mitigate that, whether it was placing more security, whether it was going to talk to them proactively. And we, we decided, let's do a little research project. So we landed up interviewing about 150, what I would call old hands or experienced practitioners. It was an exceptionally frustrating research project because, you know, you talk to a veteran and they do it without even thinking. It's so habitual. 
So we would ask the question, how do you know? And the most common response we'd get is, I don't know how I know, I just know. You know, you've got to do this for 20 or 30 years before you can get the luxury of knowing like I know. Which is not a great answer when you've got 10 days to try and train, you know, the, 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 wor the worst combination of raw potential into something that may require life-saving capability. If I, if I can cut you off there, I, I have tried to discipline myself out of using experience as an answer to anything. Uh, even though you know that like everything gets easier with experience and you do things more automatically, but um, the the equivalency I've tried to use is, you know, what's the most dangerous thing we all do every day? It's driving a car, right? That's it's For most of us, that's the thing. Well, that's, well that depends where you live, Joe. Well, okay. <laughs> Here in Australia, in most first world countries, like the thing that's most likely to kill you, other than your own poor life choices, is is driving a car. So we put a lot of faith in the people that teach us to drive. Right? We pay complete strangers money to teach our children how to do something that is the most likely thing to kill them, um, at least for the first you know, 30, 40 years of their life. And yet, imagine if we asked a driving instructor, like, how much stopping distance should I leave between myself and the car in front? And he goes, well, I've been driving 20 years, you just know after some time. Like, that would be such a an inappropriate, irresponsible answer. And it's such a cop-out. And and the, the truth is that after you have been driving for a while, you don't think about how much stopping distance you have. You just stop where you know you're supposed to stop. Uh, some people haven't figured it out yet. But, you know, like generally speaking, we have a, a preference. So I think the... I know you're going to expand upon this with your, with your answer, but I'd encourage everyone who uses that, I've just been doing it so long, I just know... Think about how you learned that and what what heuristics you used to figure that out before you just knew uh, because that's that's what you're going to need to share with people. Well, Joe, that, that really was the base of the three-point check system, right? Because we started asking all these experts and eventually got to the point of going, experience is not a good answer, nor is the very detailed threat assessment answers we were getting because some experts would go, well, I walk in, I do a... You know, after having done my principal profile, I do a criticality and vulnerability assessment. I then personally evaluate every, you know, potential threat in the room. You're sort of sitting there going, you've just confused me. I'm a security expert. I don't even know what you're talking about. But realistically, what we found, and we grouped these answers together, was we could loosely divide situational awareness from a practical perspective into three things. First is the place or the environment. You need to be able to scan where you're at. So what are you looking for? Most of us are flight dominant by nature, so knowing where to get in or out, knowing where to hide if something went wrong, uh, is, is, the, is the critical starting point. So if I don't even know the exits, entrances, escape routes and hiding places, how can I say I actually am situationally aware? The next point, and many of these things happen in a cascading or integrated approach, you don't purposefully go, you know, exits, entrances, escape routes, hiding places, check, move on to the next thing. But when you're learning, it's a good way to do it as almost a checkbox activity. The next thing is you want to be looking at structural aspects, obstacles, or suspicious objects. And those three things are all integrated because, I'll give you the example, it doesn't help that you're on the 20th floor of a building, but you don't know you're on the 20th floor of a building. So you don't need you know, uh, engineering plans for every place you go, but you do need a broad understanding of structurally where you're at. Obstacles is another one. You know, it doesn't help that you go, there's the exit, but I haven't identified what could get in my way if I try to get to the exit. And obviously suspicious objects then becomes the next add-in. If I don't know what, you know, what is suspicious or might belong or not, um, I might be super vigilant for the people there, 
but I might land up, you know, inhaling dangerous chemicals. Uh, you know, if, if you live in a place where IEDs are an issue, you know, you may land up in the wrong place at the wrong time. And then the last point with an environmental place that we identified experts look for is that they look for improvised weapons and defensive objects, which, you know, realistically are actually the same thing. It just depends on perspective, right? Bad guys use their weapons. Good guys, you know, use those tools to protect themselves. So they're defensive objects as opposed to improvised weapons. And, you know, if you ever have to explain the use of force, that difference is really important. But realistically, that environmental scan or that place scan happens pretty quick. And it's also part of your baselining to figure out what's normal. So the first point in the three-point check system is place. Next, we scan people. While there might be threats that are significant or hazards involved with the environment, usually with the exception of you know, a natural disaster or an unforeseen event like a building collapse, it's the combination of people and place that become the problem. And you know, there's books and books and books and so much content around evaluating people and behavior. But what we found simplistically most experts look for is first and foremost, they look at appearance. And, you know, we all know there's cues in just how people look that could tell us whether they're a threat or not. And we're not talking necessarily now about what they're doing that comes next. We're talking about purely what they look like. Um, in researching this, we found, you know, generally speaking, we will look for things like gender, size, uh, and, you know, race as our first identifying characteristics we'll then look for things more specifically like, uh, you know, what sort of shoes are they wearing, what clothes are they wearing, etc. But realistically, when we, when we kind of drill back down, starting with first and foremost, you know, what clothes are they wearing becomes a really good start because we can straight away go, are they concealing weapons? Are they breaking up the shape of their face? And then we can dig further and further and further. Appearance alone is just not enough, though, as a threat indicator because otherwise we'd have no crime, right? You know, police would just arrest people for looking dodgy. That, that does happen some places. And, and, and occasionally, you know, law enforcement officers are correct. Yeah, yeah it's a, I think it's a frustration for a lot of, lot of our law enforcement listeners is when you know someone's guilty, but you don't have any evidence yet. So the challenge we've got is, it's, you know, appearance is not enough, but when we superimpose appearance with attitude, behavior, and body language, we get a whole bunch of other indicators. And, you know, I, I know you've had you know, discussions around books like Left to Bang and Gift to Fear. And, you know, there's some great work out there around, you know, some of these early warning indicators from an attitudinal, behavioral or body language perspective. You know, if you want to master the stuff, those are fields of study in their own right that deserve a lot of attention. But you don't have to overcomplicate it. Simply, in one word, what are we looking for? Anomaly. We're looking for things that are not normal. That's it. So if everybody's happy and this guy's not, why? It doesn't mean he's a terrorist or a criminal. He might just need a hug. But the anomalies will help us identify what to focus on. And the last point we, we speak about with people is grouping. And, and this is the piece any of you who've ever been involved in managing violence in practical terms know that you get into a fight with one guy, you're fighting his friends too. And most predators who are very experienced and really do want an outcome won't hunt alone. So we do need to understand grouping. We do need to be able to identify and evaluate groups. So I'll just summarize where we're at there really quickly. Uh, speaking about the first point, which is place or environment. We look at exits, entrance, escape, routine places. Then we next look for uh, structural aspects, obstacles, or uh, suspicious objects. 
Then we evaluate improvised weapons, defensive tools. So that's our first part. Second part, we evaluate people. We look at appearance. Then we look for attitude, behavior, body language, then grouping. That Those two points give you almost all the information you need to determine is there a threat or not. The next piece, and we purposefully added it in, is it doesn't help that you can do an evaluation without a plan. So the third point is plan. If I've evaluated the place and I evaluated the people, your plan might literally be, okay, I'm going to do another scan in five minutes because there are no threats now. So you, can, you know, I've got a plan. My plan is I'm going to do another scan. Or it might be I've identified this guy. He looks dodgy. He's following me. Okay, there's a doorway 50 meters from here that I can run away and hide. Or I'm going to pick up this brick, and if he runs, I'm going to turn around and smash him with it. But you've got to have a plan, and simplistically put, I like to divide plans into two criteria, uh, basically emergency or crisis, which really, you know, you're either going to run, hide, fight, or communicate. Those are your four choices. Okay, or non-crisis. So if it's not an emergency, you've got a lot more time. And then there's a wide range of options where you may choose to de-escalate, you may choose to avoid, you may choose to engage. There's, there's a ton of options that are available when it's a non-crisis type response. The more you can improvise, uh, sorry, implement those three points and make it habitual, the easier situational awareness gets. So we found most people do a lot of this stuff anyway. When you give them a sort of a checklist like we've just described, it enables them to go, yes, I'm doing this right or wrong. I could do it a little better. There's no perfect formula for this. Uh, my goal with this stuff is just to go, well, if you don't have a system, here's one that could work for you. I found it to be very effective. We've trained thousands and thousands of people in this methodology. And even the, uh, I guess, least aware, most uh, naive people go, okay, yeah, I get that. The goal, and it really is a simple goal, is just to make that habitual. That's the hard work. And I think that's, that's such a key component because uh, we, uh, yeah, our, our brain gets really good at recognizing patterns, right? So if you're constantly in the same sort of environment uh, and you don't, you're not really pushed outside of that comfort zone of that type of environment or, or even that specific environment or that, that trajectory or that, that plan of travel, or it's very easy to be switched off right? and, to, and to, to not be paying attention because you just expect things are going to look the same way, the same as we will drive home from work and drive 40 minutes surrounded by other people in charge of you know, a, a thousand kilograms of, of metal traveling 100 kilometers an hour and we don't even remember that we drove, right? Uh, we, we can all switch off. And uh, as, as I started to unpack the three-point check, uh, one of the things that uh, I started implementing with my kids actually because uh, I wanted to give them some situational awareness but didn't want to say, what are you going to do when a terrorist comes because that's probably not really a great conversation for yeah, uh, uh, a six-year-old and a seven-year-old. But... Um, when my two oldest were about six and seven, I started doing a, playing a game with them where I'd take them to, say, a shopping center and, and just randomly stop them while we're out doing the, doing the shopping and say, uh, who can find the closest exit? Whoever gets the closest exit gets a lolly. Uh, or it became points after a while. And they would compete against each other to find the closest exit. And what it actually started doing, because I did it frequently enough, they didn't know when I was going to ask them, is they started paying attention to the exits subliminally. And uh, there was a really interesting progression over a period of about six months where uh, initially their answer would be basically where we'd come in because their connection to the outside world was where we'd left the outside world, which, to be honest, is still progress because most adults can't figure out how they got into a shopping centre anyway. Uh, but um, that was their first point. And then as they started getting competitive with each other, 
they would start noticing more and more. And uh, the, the time I knew I'd nailed it and that this had been a really effective use of time, my oldest daughter, Grace, uh, we were in a, in a shopping centre at... Uh, uh, in Melbourne, and we're, we're waiting for uh, her mum to come out of a shop. And I had had a couple of the kids there, and I was like, "All right, guys, where's the closest exit?" And and Grace just scanned the the shops around me and said, "There's a butcher shop over there." And I, I paused for a second. I was trying to trying to catch up with her thought process. I thought she'd just done that thing that kids do, where they just have ignored you and talked about something different. And I said, what, "What do you mean?" And she goes, "Well, I've never seen them bring the cow in the front door." And what she had actually intuitively figured out as, as a seven-year-old was that a butcher shop must have loading dock access because you never see them bring carcasses through the public entry. And I thought, that is genius. Like That's something that I probably wouldn't have considered straight away without really thinking about it. If I was looking for an exit point, she had figured out that if she ran through the back of the butcher shop, she'd probably find a way out. And, uh, and I was like, wow, okay, well, my, my job's done. I've actually created a monster now. Like, she's, she's so switched on. Um, and we, we, we added to that, we, we started doing hiding places. If you had to hide somewhere, where would you hide? Uh, which is a good tip for parents because now I know how my kids' brains think and, where they, and uh, where they identify as hiding places. And the last one was, if you had to find a safe adult, who would you go to around here? And uh, for any parents that want to steal this, statistically, it's a, it's a mum-aged female working in a shop. <laughs> that's, that's the description I use, a mum-aged female working in a shop because statistically less likely to actually stumble across a, a predator who is female, adult, and employed, right? So uh, those are those are just some, some tools, but it gave the kids the ability to be situationally aware without putting any sort of scary stimulus behind it. Um, the, the other thing that I recommend for, uh, for adults to do, I mean, you can do those same things and you can even reward yourself with lollies when you get it right. That's totally fine. Uh, but the other thing I, I recommend people do as a mental exercise is just even if you're just doing your regular commute, go a different way, like choose a different route to what you're used to because it will force your brain to pay attention to things that you would have otherwise driven past. Um, it's anything you can do to change up your habits and your routine can, can stimulate that, those, uh, yeah, those synapses to fire a little bit differently again. It's no different to when you're driving a, a different car or a new car for the first time and it doesn't handle exactly right and all of a sudden you've got to pay attention to everything you do because the brakes are a little bit touchy or the steering's a little bit heavy or... Uh, yeah, all those sorts of things. But get outside your comfort zone because, as you said, being habitually aware can be difficult. So sometimes you need to give yourself a bit of a, a bit of a kick, a bit of a prompt to start paying attention. Uh, Gav, as a, as a closing thought on that, as someone who's trained probably thousands of people over the years, have you found who, who have you found easier to make situationally aware? The people that maybe are coming to you from a law enforcement or military background who think they're really situationally aware as is. <laughs> Or people that are switched off and, and ignorant. Is there is there a difference, and who do you prefer to work with? <laughs> long question, long yeah. question, Joe. Uh, two things I just want to cover before we talk about that. Uh, firstly, it sounds like your daughter's got a career in security ahead of her, so that's a good thing. <laughs> but, I don't, is it a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you're a graduate of our psychology of risk program, so you, you know you're aware of how important understanding how the human mind works is to you know, any sort of safety, security or risk approach. And there's two things that, you know, initially in my first draft of Can I See Your Hands, I didn't include them, but they are really important when we try and teach this and apply this. The first one is the concept of learned helplessness. And it's one of the worst uh, hindering factors when it comes to situational awareness. You know, over time, people will learn 
that you know they can't help themselves they need to only wait for security or police to help them and once people enter that state of learned helplessness trying to actually empower them and turn on the sheepdog is exceptionally difficult so you know try to strive for those people you want to influence they need to be empowered they you need to fight that learned helplessness because there's very rarely a situation where there's nothing you can do and if people believe there's nothing they can do early on they they're almost impossible to switch on and then the second one which is a more common one and you the point you made about changing roots really important is normalization uh we tend to not be situationally aware once we've normalized an environment or we've normalized people and this happens subconsciously when we've for example you might be walking through a really bad part of town and the first time you walk through it you're super vigilant the second time you're a little less vigilant the third time you're even less vigilant by the 50th time you walk through there you you've now subconsciously determined this is a safe environment i don't need to be vigilant at all so you've now gone into a state where you're absolutely vulnerable because you've normalized what's happening around you based on prior experience so we have to be really careful you have to constantly if we want great outputs you need to fight learned helplessness and try to be constantly aware of normalization so it doesn't become habitual and we become less aware which kind of segues me to the question you asked which who's easier to train there's no question sheep dogs are easier to train because they come switched on uh having said that like i went through a stage in my career uh after uh, a lot of training in israel and working as a bodyguard and i only wanted to train fighters and i only wanted to work with let's say tier 1 and 2 operators you never only work with tier 1 uh and that yeah you only operate for, you, you only uh, only train tier 1 if you that's in your marketing materials <laughs> no, absolutely and uh you know I, i particularly even in my martial arts schools i didn't want to train anybody that wasn't a fighter because i didn't feel i could relate to them and as my kind of life experience has grown and you know i've 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 experienced uh many more people that i've interacted with who've been victims the more you do that the more you realize it's it's actually usually not the tier 1 highly experienced martial artist that needs these tools it's everyone else and arguably you know the more frail elderly and fragile someone is the more they need situational awareness and vigilance and the ability to apply these skills it's a huge mental leap for somebody who's used to dealing with fighters and sheep dogs to actually go well i'm going to work with the others who aren't but you know again who needs it more the people who are ready rav switched on who are ready and will train themselves and keep themselves switched on they usually need more polishing they 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 often need uh validation they they usually don't necessarily need a ton more tools the people who've never been exposed to they're much harder it's much harder to switch people like that it's much harder to teach them self defense but hey if you're the predator who are you going to pick you know for those of you who haven't met joe he's a pretty big guy you're probably not going to pick him um you know you're going to you're going to pick the the easier victim and that easier victim probably needs the self defense capability more so it's one of those messages i i'd, I'd love the listeners to kind of leave with their thought if you are somebody in the prime of your career that loves working with fighters and sheep dogs and that's your identity start trying to give a little bit more to the people who need it most it's really hard I made so many mistakes with this uh so so many. Uh, I think of a guy he he came to me in confidence and said look you know I'm out of shape I've never exercised I've never done martial arts um I'll pay you for private lessons uh, I want to become a fighter. And I, I took him for his first private lesson 
and he couldn't do a push-up. And instead of encouraging and building him slowly, I was just flabbergasted that a, you know, a male aged 20 to 25 could not do a push-up. And he never came back. And it's one of those, it was not his failure, it was my failure. Because like, he, he actually wanted it. If I had just been that little more encouraging, just built him up a little bit more, uh, I would have got a better output. So, you know, I, I think this is a challenge to all your listeners. You obviously have a lot of listeners who are sheepdogs, a lot of warriors who you know, are looking to resonate uh, with other warriors. But realistically, it, it's a hard lesson to learn for people like us because globally we are not in a warrior era. And it's really hard for people like us who are wired this way to accept that the majority of people are not like us. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't try and give them the skills that enable them to lead a healthier, safer life. So thanks for the opportunity, Joe. Great to chat to you and your listeners again. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much, so much more we could talk about. But uh, if you if you want to know more about Gav, or uh, obviously if you want to know more about Gav's origin story, we covered that in the first episode, and uh, and we also did a, a second episode, which was uh, right as the lockdown started to happen. There was more of a, a, a conversation about some of the skills from martial arts and how they can apply to other areas of your life. But uh, Gab, it's been great to have you back. Uh, I would like to plug your book, Can I See Your Hands?, which is available on Amazon uh, and a variety of other places as well. Uh, and uh, also, if, if you're interested in uh, some online courses, uh, Gav has created uh, quite a number of courses at r2s.academy. So it's www.r2s.academy. Uh, there's a whole stack of courses. One of them even has my face in it. Uh, and uh, the, the rest of them are also excellent uh, about uh, everything ranging from emergency management to general security and safety awareness, aggressive behavior management, so on and so forth. So if you go to www.r2s.academy, if you put in the coupon code JOEMVP, you'll get 10% off your order. So that's a, a nice bonus for listeners. It's been my great pleasure to spend some time uh, and, uh, and chat martial arts and situational awareness with my boss and sensei, Dr. Gav Schneider. Gav, thanks again. Thanks, Joe, and thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Managing Violence podcast. It was my great pleasure to be joined by Gav Schneider. And make sure you check out his book, Can I See Your Hands, available on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes. Also, uh, the Academy courses at r2s.academy. Check those out. Use the coupon code JOEMVP for a discount. What's not to love about a good discount? We will be back to normal scheduling as of next week. I am joined by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Wayne Phelps next week. We're going to be talking about a really interesting subject that is way out of left field for this podcast, and that is drone warfare. What is the psychological cost of killing at a distance? We're talking to the author of On Killing Remotely, Wayne Phelps. That will be a good one. Make sure you check it out. I'll talk to you again next time.